So uh, this past weekend was uh, my son Campbell's third birthday. Um, we had a good time celebrating that, but uh, you should also pray for me because he is a little bit of a stinker. I think the terrible twos are going to extend into the threes. Um, a few weeks ago, <clears throat> we were getting ready for bedtime, and all of a sudden, he is standing by the front door, losing his ever-loving mind. I mean, just screaming at the top of his lungs, Daddy, 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 where's my blue blankie? Now, if you're not familiar with Campbell's blue blankie, this is not just any regular old blue blanket, okay? This is the blanket that he needs to be with him at all times so that he can be comforted. He cannot sleep without this thing. He can't go anywhere without it. But we're bad parents. So we had neglected to get it out of the car when we got home with him from daycare. And so he wanted me to go to the car and get it. And he was screaming at me. But I was helping his sister brush her teeth to get ready for bed. And so I picked my head out the bathroom door and I said, Campbell, I will get your blue blankie. I just need you to be patient for a few minutes and wait on daddy so that he can go to the car and get it. And uh, I go back to helping Ayla brush her teeth and then I hear the front door creak open. And he has decided that daddy's not moving fast enough and he wants to go and get the blue blankie himself and take matters into his own hands. So he opens the front door and that would be fine, uh, except for that he's not supposed to do that. And we have a dog whose name is Huxley who loves running outside the front door almost as much as Campbell loves his boo blankie. And so the second that the door opens, I know in my head, Huxley's gone. He makes a beeline out the front door and he's taking himself wherever his little nose wants to go. All right? And so then I run out of the bathroom, I have to get real clothes on, not my PJs, into real shoes to go chase my dog in the neighborhood. And it descends into chaos, right? It's 8 p.m., the dog's barking, lights on porches around the neighborhood are going on, the whole neighborhood of dogs is barking. I'm running around trying to find him, screaming his name at 8 p.m. And then I turn around, look back at our house, and Campbell has decided he's gonna help fix this mess he made. And he's coming down the hill, almost into oncoming traffic. I have to run onto the street, stop a car. It's chaos. All right, and then it takes us 30 minutes to find Huxley, and guess who doesn't get his blue blankie for thir another 30 minutes? Campbell, right? Because he just wasn't patient enough to wait for me to do it. He didn't trust that I was a good father, and I was going to give him his blue blankie in due time. Well, once I recovered from the frustration of that experience, I was reflecting later that night as I went to bed, and I realized I do this with God. I mean, I do this in my prayer life. Like, I make a huge scene, like screaming at the top of my lungs, God, do this thing for me. Get this thing for me. And then when he's not moving at my pace, I decide I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And what ends up happening is a whole bunch of chaos that doesn't just affect me, it affects all those around me. And then I'm sitting there expecting God to come and clean up my mess. Like, where are you, God? Where have you been? My only choice as a father in that moment was to respond to the crisis that Campbell had made. What I wanted to do was to get him his boo blankie. He just wasn't patient enough to trust that I was good and wanted to do that for him. And so there was a delay in him getting what he wanted because he tried to take matters into his own hands. And in this series of grown-up prayers, what we're trying to do is begin to uh, mature a little bit in our prayer lives. Because I think a lot of us approach prayer a little bit like Campbell at the front door. A little childish, a little immaturity. 
where we're just screaming at God, wanting what we want, and he doesn't deliver it. And so then we try to take matters in our hands and make a mess of our lives. And we're like, where's God? Why did he not show up? And so in this, in this series, we're trying to grow up a little bit so that we can become grown-up prayers that pray grown-up prayers that mature a little bit in our prayer life. My name is Jake Davis. If we haven't met, I'm the college and creative pastor here at Mountaintop. I'm thrilled to continue the series with you this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, for the rest of our time together this morning. Because I thought, if we're going to learn how to pray grown-up prayers, who better to learn from than the man that we follow? Jesus himself. Did you know that in Scripture, he's so concerned with the prayer life of his disciples that he gives them a model, a framework of how they should pray? You've probably heard it referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And it's something that we just kind of repeat in church from time to time. But actually, it's a framework for how we are to pray. But we're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Because before he gets started teaching us how to pray, he's going to teach us how not to pray by telling us about a certain group of people. Matthew 6, verse 5. If you need a Bible, there's some uh, back there. You can take one of those on your way out. Or you can open it up on your app and follow along that way as well. It says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have already received their reward. Do not be like the hypocrites who make a big scene out of their prayers. And here's what Jesus is trying to, to say to us, okay? Prayer is not a show. It's not a performance. You don't have to say a certain word. You don't have to talk in different phrases. Listen, I grew up Southern Baptist, right? So I grew up in the, in the tradition that your prayer was judged by how many words you could say that no one knew. That's how we knew if you were a mature prayer or not. We don't have to do that. It's not about how eloquent we are, or how, how many Christian phrases we, we know, or how long we spend praying to God, because it's not a performance. It's not a show. Prayer is not a performance. You don't have to act the word that he uses there for hypocrites in the Greek is literally a word that meant stage actor, all right? And these Greek stage actors, they would wear a bunch of different masks and play one, they were one person, but they play many different characters. We don't have to put on masks when we come to pray to God. He wants the real us because it's not a show. It's not about a performance. He wants us to come to him honestly and pray to him. And if we wait to pray until it's polished, how do we ever expect our prayer life to grow? We've got to practice. If we're after grown-up prayers, then we have to release ourselves from the pressure to perform for God. Because that's not what prayer is about anyways. And, and just stop pretending like you have it all together because if you did, you wouldn't need to pray to him in the first place. God's not searching for pretenders. He's searching for prayers. Now, the second mistake that this group makes is that they make prayer about themselves. Like they're standing on the street corners of the synagogue hoping to be seen, hoping to gain the attention of those around them because they've decided that prayer is about themselves. But here's the reality. Prayer is not about you at all. It's not about you. Prayer is, is a communion between you and God. And the emphasis should only be on one side of that party. Prayer is not about you. And so when we pray self-centered prayers all about us, we miss the point of prayer. We actually hinder ourselves from unlocking the true power of prayer when we make it all about ourselves. Because we're not trying to gain anybody's attention, right? Because prayer, in reality, it's not even about 
getting God's attention. It's not even about getting the attention of God. As if we are floating around life on a life raft, and God's this helicopter going by overhead, and we're like, hey, down here, shooting flares, right? Trying to get him to notice us. No, we don't need to, we don't need to compete for God's attention. He already sees us. He's already listening to us. He's already giving his attention to us. The God of the universe cares about us. And so we don't have to compete for his attention as if he's going to leave us on red or as if he's going to ghost us. No, we don't have to pray to get God's attention. That's not what it's about. And you might be like, well, that's kind of weird, Jake, because we just sang this song about wanting to desire to move the heart of God. And one, of the th- one of the things I think that we get wrong when we hear that song is that we think we're asking God, hey, t- tell me how to manipulate you. Tell me how it is I can move your heart to do what I want you to do. That's not what the song is about at all. The song is not about trying to manipulate the heart of God. Why would you have to move the heart of a God whose heart already beats for you? And what more evidence of that do you need than the cross? God came to earth in the form of his son, Jesus. He lived a perfect life, and he died a gruesome death, all for one purpose, to be able to meet with you. He he went through all of that just because his heart beats for you. So you don't have to move his heart. It's already for you. Prayer is not about just trying to get God's attention, like Campbell at the front door screaming and hoping that I would hear him. Prayer is not a show. It's not a performance. It's not about you. It's not even about getting God's attention because we don't have to compete for God's attention. There's enough of God to go around. And Although we don't have to fight for his attention, he is jealous for ours. Jesus continues now about how to pray. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I mean, this is real practical advice from Jesus. I mean, he's not, he's not joking. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and get quiet. I would challenge you this week as you pray to do that. Like, go into a room, shut the door, be quiet, and pray. Because what Jesus is trying to teach us is that prayer is actually intimate. It's not a performance. It's an intimate, an intimate uh, communion between you and God. It's sort of like a rendezvous where the two of you get to meet and, and talk, and you do as much listening as you do talking because prayers intimate. And let's just, let's just pause for a second and realize uh, we have an audience with the God of the universe. Like we've been given a voice to speak to the God who spoke everything into existence. We're allowed into an intimate relationship with God who existed before time. We have, uh, there's this, God has granted us access to the King of Kings. And, and we have an opportunity 
to address him, right? It says, go into your room and pray to him, Father, right? This is, it's no pomp and circumstance, just a familial greeting for a secret meeting with the king who just so happens to call you child. It's, it's intimate. And God wants your attention. But that can be difficult, right? So that's why he instructs us, go into your room, shut the door, get quiet. Because he knows that life can be distracting. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've started to pray about something and then find myself thinking about something else entirely. Like, what was I doing again? Oh, I was praying, right? <clears throat> and this is especially hard in our day and age because <clears throat> we're constantly bombarded with noise, constantly bombarded with things vying for our attention. I mean, this is in our pocket, right? So even when we go into a room and shut the door, this stays with us. The world stays with us. So when you pray this week, leave us outside your door. Because this is a temptation to get distracted. As I minister to college students, and uh, there's this verse in Scripture that a lot of them have problems with. Um, Paul instructs us at some point to pray without ceasing. And they're like, Jake, how is that even possible to pray without ceasing? I got so much going on, I can't pray without ceasing. And the whole time we're sitting there having this conversation, they've got their phone in their hand and they're like scrolling social media. What if we treated the God of the universe like we treated our phones? Instead of scrolling without ceasing, what if we talk to God without ceasing? I mean, listen, listen, to, listen to how I describe our phones. It's, a, it's a, an idol that's competing for every idle moment of your life. Uh, I found this clip as I was studying this week of um, comedian Bo Burnham, all right? Not a role model, don't watch his comedy, okay? But this clip, he shares some uh, kind of pertinent wisdom about what social media and our phones are doing to us. He, he, he gave this speech at a YouTube symposium uh, a couple years ago. Let's watch this. They're coming for every second of your life. That, that's what these companies are coming to, this company as well. And it's not because anyone is bad. It's not because anyone in this company has evil plans or is trying to do this. They're not even doing it consciously. It's because these companies like Twitter and uh, YouTube and Instagram and everything, they went public and they went to shareholders. So they have to grow. Their entire models are based off of growth. They cannot stay stagnant. Twitter grossed four or five billion dollars last year. It is in the red. It is unprofitable. It has to get more of you. We used to colonize land. That was the thing you could expand into. And that's where money was to be made. We colonized the entire earth. There was no other place for the businesses and capitalism to expand into. And then they realized human attention. That we can now, they are now trying to colonize every minute of your life. That is what these people are trying to do. Every single free moment you have is a moment you could be looking at your phone and they could be gathering information to target ads at you. Every single free moment, they're coming for you. They're coming for your time. They're vying for your attention. And it's a parasitic relationship right? The more you consume it, the more it asks of you. Listen to this. Our phones. They're the first thing we look at. 
the first thing we talk to, the first thing we allow to speak into our life, the lens through which we view our past, the filter for our future decisions. They tell us where we're going and what to expect along the way. We allow it to tell us where to go to get our sustenance. We rely on it to deliver our daily bread. It's where we turn when we need to feel significant. It's where we turn when we want to know that we matter and someone else cares about us. It's where we go when we're worried about tomorrow. What's the weather? What's the news? What's wrong with our world? What's wrong with me? It's where we go with our questions and curiosities. Have a thought? Just put it in the search bar. Have a question or curiosity? Google it. We need to know how to fix something? YouTube it. We respond to it subtle nudgings. Bling, you have a notification. I'm still here. Pay attention to me. It asks for our attention. It constantly taps on our shoulder. It's like a digital spirit guiding us through our lives. It's where we deposit every fleeting thought. It's uh, where we invest every idle moment. It dictates our schedules. We allow it to tell us when to wake up, when to go to sleep, when to go anywhere. We get nervous. We might have to spend a few moments without it. It lives rent-free in our heads, providing the things that get stuck in our heads, the sayings, the songs, the lyrics, the tunes. And all it asks in return from us is that we give ourselves over to it, our whole selves, every free moment. And we oblige every time. We just keep on scrolling. And the more it grows, the more of us it consumes. It's not so with our God, though. The more of God that we consume, the more we grow. The more that we consume him in our prayer life, the more that we grow. Because he doesn't, he doesn't take from us. He asks for us to freely give ourselves to him. And then when we do, he grows us up. And that requires us to understand that, that prayer, it, it's not about us. It's, it's about God. It's about the God of the universe. That's why we're praying in the first place, to pray to our Father. And instead of us just trying to vie for his attention, what prayer is actually about is giving God your attention. That's how you move his heart. You just give him all of your attention. You spend all your time on him. And Jesus warns us. He says, do not be like them. For, their, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He already knows what you need. And so some of you who are like kind of dissenters in the room would say, well, then, Jake, that raises a great question for me. Why pray? I mean, if God already knows what I need before I ask him, why would I pray to him? That misses the point entirely. Because the purpose of prayer is not to get what you need at all. The purpose of prayer is not about getting what you want from God. It's about getting what God wants into you. It's not about going to him with all these things that you want and you desire. It's about going to him and say, God, would you give me whatever it is you have for me? And would you put that inside of me? And that's why this model is so important. That's why we study this model that he's about to give us, the Lord's Prayer. Because it reveals to us that prayer is not about getting the desires of our hearts. It's about aligning our hearts to God's desires. Let's just read the prayer together. <clears throat> this then is how you should pray, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And you'll see I kind of split it into two sections. I did this on purpose because I believe that Jesus is trying to tell us two different things. That prayer is about recognizing who we're praying to and then submitting to that Lord. Recognizing who we're praying to, right? Your, 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 your. Praying to God. This is about him. This is about his kingdom. And so we pray, our Father in heaven. Because we're praying about him, to him. And I think that what is happening here is that on this side of the prayer, Jesus is trying to help us cultivate a kingdom mindset. And on this side, he's trying to help us cultivate a kingdom lifestyle. All right? The kingdom mindset is simply this. I am nothing, but God did something that changed everything and impacts how I see everyone around me. I'm nothing. I'm nothing without my Father in heaven, but God did something about it, and it changed everything for me. It changes the way I see the world entirely. And so I can say my first request when I come to you in prayer, God, has nothing to do with what I want or what I need or what I desire. Hallowed be your name. Your name be praised. Your name be holy. Your name be worshipped. That is the desire of my heart, first and foremost, because you've changed everything. You've changed everything about the way I see the world, so much so that my second prayer is this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your kingdom. Your will. Do whatever you want to in my life. Give me a mindset that says, I am yours, and all I have is yours. On earth as it is in heaven. God's will is carried out perfectly in earth. Here in our broken world, people turn from God's will every day. Our heartbeat should be when I'm in prayer, God, would you make your will happen here on earth just as it is in heaven, perfectly, holy. We pray for God's kingdom to come, to change our mindset. And then secondarily, this is about cultivating a kingdom lifestyle. A kingdom lifestyle simply says this. I hold nothing back, and I allow God to do something with everything that I have to impact everyone around me. So I give all my life to him. Just do something with everything I have to impact people around me. And so we pray this way. Give us today our daily bread, because prayer is about cultivating a life of reliance on God. Reliance on God. Give us today our daily bread. Not tomorrow's bread, not enough bread for the week. Just today. Because we realize that nothing is more dangerous than a surplus. More than enough makes us think more than we should of ourselves. When we have too much, we think too much of our own capabilities. And prayer exists to help us nurture a reliance, a trust in God. See, when we have a surplus, we can really go one of two paths. We can either allow it to lead us to have pride, right? Where it's like, ah, all of this that I have, I did, I earned this. Or it can lead to complacency, just kind of like resting on our laurels, like I have everything I need, I'm good. But that's not what prayer is about. We ask, God, would you give us just enough bread for today? That way, 
it requires me to come back to the source tomorrow. Grown-up prayers recognize, we recognize, that we don't need to be greedy because God will always be generous. And when we operate out of sufficiency rather than surplus, we learn to rely on God. And surplus, I mean, let's be honest, it tends to go to waste anyways, right? You buy that big thing from Costco, you, you eat half of it. Because we, we tend to waste when we have too much. It, it gets piled up for a rainy day for when our resources run dry. But when we trust on God daily and rely on him, we don't need a plan B. We don't need stockhouses. We don't need a backlog because God always has what we need. We have just enough, and we're careful not to waste what we've been given. And here's the secret. As we grow this way, as we begin to learn to have trust in God and daily rely on him, he begins to trust us in return. He begins to give you your daily bread and entrusts more to you because he knows you won't squander it. Because you've cultivated a reliance on him. And, 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 and daily bread in the hands of someone who has reliance on God is worth more than a year's worth of bread in the hands of an unfaithful servant. Just trust God to provide your daily bread and watch how he provides. Followers who don't have to worry about where their daily bread comes from, they're freed up to think about kingdom things. They're not worried about uh, where their uh, food's going to come from. They're not ruled by the desires of their stomachs because they have all they need in God. And they're not worried about propagating personal gain or padding a personal portfolio because their game is an eternal game. And the kingdom is worth more than gain. They're satisfied to trust God for daily sustenance. And their daily bread has the purpose of strengthening them for the kingdom work that God's called them to. And so we pray, God, would you just give us our daily bread just, to just, just enough? Here's the reality, though. Jesus knows that we're not going to trust him 100% of the time. And so in his prayer, he bakes in a way for us to deal with that. He knows that in asking for our daily bread, we are going to accrue a debt. And so he says, pray, forgive us our debts. And this is about cultivating in our lives repentance to God. If daily bread, if asking for our daily bread is about supplication, then asking God to forgive our debts is about salvation. It recognizes that we are in desperate need of a God to save us, and we do not have the power to do it on our, on our own. When we recognize that we have a debt that needs to be paid, and we can do nothing to pay that debt, then only the God who is rich in mercy can cover the cost. Because we still fail, we still get it wrong, and we still build up a debt that we're incapable of praying. And so we pray, God, give us our daily bread that we might live. We pray, forgive us our debts that we might not die as a result of our sinfulness that God would continue to cover our sin. So we pray, acknowledging the saving power of Jesus. And this is not like to get you depressed and, and to focus on your sin and to linger there, but to realize that your sinfulness means that you're in need of a Savior and then to have gratitude for the way that he's delivered you from your sin and then to turn around and walk the other way in repentance to God. And just, have you tried this? Have you ever just like confessed to God? Like, God, would you reveal to me all the ways in my life that I'm accruing a debt against you? And would you cultivate repentance in my life to turn 
and walk the other way. And then have gratitude for the way that Jesus has reconciled you to God. And then Jesus says, pray also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is tough, right? Prayer is about cultivating a reconciliation with others. And Jesus knows that we need to pray for it because it's hard work to forgive. It's interesting. It seems like Jesus is, is tying our forgiveness, the forgiveness we receive, to the forgiveness we give. He says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And if it's not clear enough there, he goes a few verses later and he says, for if you have forgiven other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Hey, uh-oh. Forgiveness is hard. But we have to recognize that when we hold on to unforgiveness in our lives, we are calling God a fool. I mean, God, you wouldn't understand. I mean, you just don't understand how bad they hurt me. How could I be expected to take on the fault when they're the one that did the damage? I can't say sorry to that person. That'd be foolish. That'd bring, that'd bring harm to myself. How, how could I do that, God? I'll hold on to this grudge. But Jesus just tells us that's not the heart of a person who has been forgiven. So no, our, our forgiveness is not dependent on our ability to forgive other people's, as if we could earn God's forgiveness by anything we do outside of the grace of God. But Jesus is saying very clearly that there's a correlation between our willingness to forgive and the way that we receive forgiveness. Anyone who has been given the right to call God Father has been granted access to the throne of the judge, but then can call him Dad. And even though none of us deserve it, we have been forgiven and invited out of the kingdom of death and into God's kingdom of life. And that means that God has looked upon all that we have done wrong and still offered us forgiveness, still called us his children. So therefore, if we are going to receive the goodness of that exchange, we cannot then define that act as foolish. And make no mistake, that's what we do in our hearts when we tell God we're not going to forgive someone else. Forgiveness is foolishness. Not so in the kingdom of God. We forgive because we've been forgiven. As followers of Jesus, we give ourselves, who gave himself for us, while we were still his enemies, we seek reconciliation with other people. If not, we are at threat of cheapening God's grace, because we don't then turn it around and reinvest it in the life of someone else. Prayer is about cultivating not only a reconciliation with others, but also a resistance to our flesh. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus knows that our flesh is constantly at war with us and doesn't want us to lead this type of life, doesn't want this type of life cultivated in our hearts. And so we say, God, lead us not into temptation. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think that God tempts us. I think that's pretty clear in Scripture. God does not tempt us. But I do think that God tests us. And I think there's really two kind of experiences that we have in life. Either suffering or satisfaction. And in satisfaction, the test from God is, will you praise me? When you are satisfied, will you give me the praise and the glory for your satisfaction? The temptation that Satan wants us to fall into in satisfaction is, will you idolize the thing that brought you satisfaction? And then in suffering, listen, I don't want to, listen, I don't want to limit anybody suffering in the room today. I don't know what you came into the room carrying. There are people in this room who are suffering, and it's hard. 
and it seems like God has failed. And we sang a song earlier about how God never fails, and you're like, I can't sing that this morning because my life would bear different evidence. But in suffering, God is giving us an opportunity to trust in him that he is still good. The temptation that Satan wants us to live into in our flesh is to curse God. And so we pray, Jesus, God, would you lead us not into that type of temptation? In your testing of me, will I always give praise to you and will I always trust that you are good no matter what happens in my life? And then finally, Jesus tells us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Because prayer is about cultivating a recognition of our weakness. God, without you, I'm helpless. I need a deliverer. There's an enemy that wants to attack me. I'm powerless to defeat that enemy unless you work on my behalf. See, it's a posture of humility that comes to God and said, I need you. Deliverer. Deliver me from the evil one. And I believe if we begin to pray in this way, we pray in a way that cultivates reliance on God, repentance to God, reconciliation with others, resistance to our flesh, a recognition of our own weakness, then we begin to have prayers that look a little more grown up and a little less self-centered. Because here's the truth about grown-up prayers. They're not concerned about what can be gained. They're concerned about what is being grown. They're concerned about what's being grown in our lives. What is God cultivating in my life? Is he cultivating a kingdom mindset and a kingdom lifestyle? And so I want to give you a practical way to pray as you head into your week with this model, all right? It's pretty simple. It's just two steps. Would you start your prayers this week? God, have your will in my life. I don't want anything else in my life other than your will. And then you can have my life for your purposes. I just give you everything. I pour it all out to you. Would you just take it? What I wanted from Campbell that night was for him to just trust me and obey. Nothing moves the heart of a father like an obedient child. That's what God wants for us too. That we trust in his kingdom way and that we would just obey to walk in it. That's how you move the heart of God. You're a child who comes to him and say, God, I just have your will in my life and then use my life for whatever purpose you might have. Reframe my life in that way. The story that Ben read earlier about the woman with the alabaster jar. She broke it, this expensive perfume, and she poured it out on God. People in the room were like, that's such a waste. How could you? Just like, no, no, no. She's done something beautiful for me. And then later he says, anytime a word of the gospel is uttered, her name will be mentioned. Make no mistake, she matters because her heart was concerned with kingdom things that other people around her could not see. And so she spent it all, a year's worth of wages that would have been like gold to her. She broke it and spilt it out as an offering of worship to God. I have my college students ask me all the time, how do I know the will of God? How do I know the will of God? He tells us in scripture. 
Romans 12.1, offer your lives as living sacrifices. And when you do, you will be able to test what the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. You want to know the will of God? Give your life to him and he will reveal his will to you. Spend it all. It might look like a waste to other people, but in kingdom perspective, when you give your all to God, you end up growing. Because you trust in a God who's good and wants to involve you in what he's doing in this world. So I'm going to pray for us in this model of praying, and then we're going to sing the song that we sang at the beginning of the service together before the sermon, Move Your Heart. And I want you to think as we sing this song, God, would you, I want to know how to move your heart. So would you give me a heart that says, I'm giving it all for you because I know that's what moves you. And then as that happens, would you move my heart to be aligned with your way of life? Let's pray together. God, thank you that we get to come to you as father. Not as, not as judge. You've given us a place at your throne, in the throne room as family. And so we cry out to you and we say, God, we need you. We don't want anything else but you. Before we ask for a thing from you, God, we would just say, would you have your will in my life? God, have your will in my family. I give them to you. Have your will in my career. Let it not be about what I can accomplish, but what you can accomplish through me, God. I surrender myself to you. God, have your will in every circumstance that I find myself in life. Would I offer you my life for your purposes? Do whatever you want to do through me so that it might be a kingdom impact because of what I've done. God, thank you, thank you for listening to us. Pray all this in your name. Amen.